This is Music Respawn. I'm Kate Remington with Marty O'Donnell. And I have to say, it is just so amazing to have a chance to talk with you about the long-awaited music of the spheres. Wow, what what a thrill to be able to talk with you about it. This is a, an amazing thrill for me, too. I, there was a point where I was thinking, maybe this will never actually be heard by anybody. And uh, the fact that people are hearing it and seem to enjoy it, and I can talk about it freely. So this is a pleasure for me. And I, I, we should say right up front, you had nothing to do with the release of this. It sort of happened out of your control, but now that it's here, we all get to enjoy it, which is fantastic. And for sure, I want to talk about the chain of events that made it possible. But I thought, you know, maybe before we even do that, we mm-hmm. could sort of go back to the, the origin story of how it was created in the first place. Because sure, as far as I know, you have never written, you had never written prequel music like this for Bungie, right? Right. To an extent, you know, the very first Halo thing that we did with uh, at Macworld with Steve Jobs, which was the Halo Monk chant and the, and the cellos and the main theme, to a certain extent, that was prequel music because the game hadn't come out yet. And as a matter of fact, lots of what the game was going to be hadn't really been designed yet. But the music wasn't made in a vacuum. The music was made for a very sp- specific moment in time, which was you know, this actual gameplay, real-time gameplay, in-engine scripted demo that we did in 1999, specifically to show at Macworld. And that music was made to go along with that. So it was music that was designed for a specific thing. But the the idea of releasing music as a prequel to, to introduce people to a world didn't occur to us until years later, over a decade later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, those early days of you guys, you know, separating from Microsoft and doing ODST, and then we were all like, well, now what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Little little did we know that the origins of Destiny go back, well, a lot earlier than I thought, uh, as early as 2009. Yeah. You know, there was a small, we were working on uh, Halo Reach, and we were working on Halo 3 ODST simultaneously, and then up in a little corner of the studio were two guys, uh, Jason Jones and Jamie Griesmer, who were just beginning to work on uh, this new thing. And we didn't, I don't even think we had a name for it yet. Uh, The secret code name was Tiger. So by 2009, it was interesting. We, we, once a year, Bungie would have a sort of a, what are we working on a team meeting? And it, it was sort of a big deal. We would have a team uh, presenters come up in front of everybody, and uh, this one was at a theater in Kirkland, to present the progress on what we things that we were working on. And this was one of the unusual times when we actually had three things going simultaneously. It was August of 2009, and we had ODST was almost completely finished and ready to ship. Halo Reach still had a probably year and a half to go. And then there was this new thing called Destiny that had just some concept art and some some pretty pictures and and uh, a sort of vague concept of what this thing was going to be like. But we still wanted to present it to the team. And this is what what's funny is I just found this piece again the other day, which ended up bits and pieces of it from an arranging standpoint, from even recordings. Uh, pieces of those recordings ended up in the, in the final product. So I happened to just find it because I, I was trying to remember how this all came about. And I'm like, oh, man, this goes all the way back to August of 2009. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. 
was that the very first piece that you wrote just with all these kind of grand, vague ideas being tossed around? Yeah, that was it. That was the very first thing. And it was for this presentation to the team. And, you know, I, I can tell you exactly now that I listened to it, what I was thinking, which was, we've talked about this before, but Halo was, what I like to do is have some sort of scale or mode or something that just sort of informs and and can unify. So Halo was Dorian. I had decided ODST was, as you know, was going to be more jazzy. So it had more jazz harmonies. And then uh, Reach, I wanted it to be a little bit more, so have a little ethnic edge to it and militaristic sort of darker edge, which was Phrygian. And these, this is the way I think uh, somehow. So whether it's accurate or not, doesn't matter. Uh, so I, I knew that we're like, we were going to have a presentation that day that would be a Phrygian jazz. And then I'm like, okay, destiny needs to have a, a whole new feeling to it. And I knew it was going to be, you know, unearthly, but our solar system, mysterious and a bit of a fantasy element to it. We wanted it to feel more fantasy than just sci-fi. So I played around and, and the, Lydian with a flat seven, which is a classic scale for impressionistic music and fantasy stuff. It, it, it's, it's just a great scale to work with. So I chose that. And I had forgotten that I had chosen it that early, but I, I mostly chose it just to, you know, truly contrast with the other stuff we were presenting <laughs> musically. I wanted it to have its own flavor immediately. But the funny part is what I forgot in hindsight here was that I had already started this little choral thing that was me doing the choir, which by the way, I, I've done this before many times. So like in Halo one, there's a piece called the Maw, which is this male choir singing. And, it, and it's all just me. It was, you know, I needed one more piece late at night <laughs> before we shipped. And, uh, I came up with this piece and I, of course I didn't have time to go out and actually hire the choir or do anything. So it was just me overdubbing my voice many times. So I do this periodically when I need to. And uh, I did it again on this thing for Bungie Day's presentation of Destiny. And uh, there was, a, I think there was a nice video that was attached to it that had concept art and some just general, you know, Joe wrote this cool little script, Joe Staten wrote this script about, you know, what if the sun blinked? You know, what if something happened in our solar system that changed everything? And so this was the music that accompanied that. And I want it to be fantasy and sci-fi and mysterious. And I'll tell you one other sort of weird thing, if anybody cares, but just a month prior, I had met an author at a, at a art convention here in, at Orcas Island called Kindlings Fest. Anyway, the author's name was Michael Ward, and he wrote a book called Planet Narnia. And it was his discussion of how C.S. Lewis came up with the Chronicles of Narnia. And I was fascinated by this because I had read a ton of C.S. Lewis. And I also had a book called The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis, which is a, just a beautifully fascinating book that talks about the medieval image of the universe which of course is pre-Copernicus and, you know, earth geocentric. And it's a beautiful image, but he had written this book called Planet Narnia where he put it all together and talked about Lewis's fascination with that image of the universe, which is not scientifically correct, but in a certain way, more beautiful 
and also is the inspiration for so much art and story and literature and myths and gods and goddesses and the days of the week. I mean, you just name it. It's it's all over the place. It's it's one of the reasons why the number seven is super important. So I that was all all in my mind way back in 2009. And so immediately I just sort of jumped on that and without having a full understanding of what music of the spheres might be, I was already using the sort of fake uh, Latin names of the planets to do this little choral thing that's in that piece that I, that I gave you. So, um, and that shows up in, eventually I had the, you know, London symphony people choir singing that for the hope, which was the last piece. And I think we even took that and used it as a little ARG call and that it was a little treat for people to get before the game came out and before the music was going to come out called eighth E I G H T H. So, but that goes all the way back to 2009 and is inspired by this idea of the pre Copernican view of the universe, which is pretty strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting to listen to because of the sounds that you mixed in. It's almost like listening to, I don't know, kind of an Edison recording. It sounds like it's coming. <laughs> it just sounds like it's coming from a long way away. And it's really interesting that you mentioned the Narnia books because as I was listening to Music of the Spheres at last, it reminded me of the first time I read the Narnia books. And I read the first five right up until the last one. And then I read the prequel. And it was fascinating because I could see how C.S. Lewis had put all the puzzle pieces together. And it, it mm -hmm. was just, there were so many like light bulb moments. And this was kind of the same thing because here were all these themes that we heard in the soundtrack and then at various points in the game. And this is where they all came from. So it was just absolutely fascinating listening to it. Well, that's cool. And, and you know, this is the thing I think that I'm glad I get to talk about this a little bit because there's been a lot of misinformation that goes out there. I mean, you know, the fans are great, but sometimes they start repeating stories that they hear from other people rather than something that might be true. But like the ability to write a two or three minute long piece and then spin it out over time into many, many other uh, arrangements or pieces that are based on that. That's just something that's just, you can, like, you can do that. That's what music does, right? You So you don't have to write, you know, nine hours of, of totally original music. You can, you can write a lot of music that is based on something. If it's, if it's strong, if it has some strong identity, you can, you can spin out themes and adapt things and make new arrangements and new compositions that are, coming from that same basis. And uh, so I knew that with Halo, we had only like a three-minute piece. And that almost lasted us, you know, you, you could trace back themes over the next 10 years that go in some way back to that original piece. So this is what was exciting to me about, you know, not only had I started something in 2009, but then I was able to spin it out even stronger with this concept of we need to have a big suite of music that can be used as a basis for another decade's worth of uh, 
of storytelling. Yeah, and it's really amazing how it all got unpacked. And the other thing is, you know, the music of the spheres seems really familiar now for anybody who's been in the world of destiny, but it doesn't sound like anything you'd written before. I mean, I, Mm. you know, there's this thread, I can hear similarities between the music for myth and, and for halo, but this is just so different from anything. And it must have been just so exciting to just completely set off on a new path. Yeah, you know, it really was. I, The reason I'm glad we're talking today is because uh, at some point, if I ever, like, decide to, you know, have a blog or, or write a book or do something, I, you know, I can flesh some of this stuff out. But I, I, I love talking to you, and you always throw music in between anything we're talking about. And, and I think it makes it much more entertaining. <laughs> but uh, at least I can sort of share my side of uh, the history of this whole thing that I haven't really done before because there was no, you know, music of the spheres uh, out there to, to actually talk about. And, and I, I think it's important to be able to tell the history of this and also hear some of those pieces because you're right. I, I really was, you know, I'd gotten to the end of this decade long thing with Halo and there was no... Uh, you know that I think we've talked about this before, but that you know I had to push a button basically and trash all of it. Right? There was no, I can't use any of those themes. I can't do that again. Well, this has to be something totally new. And I, you know, I'd been audio director at Bungie for ten years, and one of my, you know, roles as audio director is to come up with something that I, I feel is strong enough and I can cast a vision so that the people who are working with me can go in the direction that, I, that I'm leading. So I, I felt it was really important for me to understand what this new world destiny was going to be all about and what can I do to sort of cast a vision forward that, that I could communicate with other people and end up coming up with something that would feel totally different and unique. Yeah, and the game itself, the way that the concept art evolved, too. There's one piece in particular that just really stood out to me because it seems almost medieval. There are tents and there's a horse with a like a jousting um, blanket and a castle in the distance. And it's just so interesting because there is a lot of fantasy music in particular there's a passage in the rose that's like just straight up fantasy music and so <laughs> <laughs> It must have been just a really exciting time when just all these ideas were bouncing around. Well, the ideas were really, like you say, I mean, it was just like watching a ping pong match. I mean, they were going all over the place. And 
we had concept art that was pure fantasy, you know, the mysterious magical forests and, and unicorns and, you know, mysterious creatures. It had nothing to do with science fiction. And then it was like, well, no, we better do science fiction. So like, but we, we wanted it to also be, um, you know, something unique, not Halo again, but sci-fi fantasy, you know, this, it had started evolving. So we didn't want to completely walk away from this sort of idea of, you know, chivalry and knights and, and the sort of the medieval fantasy feel. So I, I stuck with that because I knew that was going to inform a lot of the feelings that the players would have when they played this game. Yeah, and it's really interesting now, even now that there's Destiny 2, there are so many bits of armor that I have that are just straight out of the Middle Ages. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really kind of cool. Uh, where did you even start with with the ideas? I mean, you mentioned that there was kind of a template and the, the, the different planets were an inspiration. But beyond that, what like really got those ideas going? Yeah, you know, it's... It's hard to, you know, absolutely remember which came first and what happened first. But I do remember that, especially like in 2009, everything was extremely vague. We were just starting to land on this idea of some sort of sci-fi universe that took place. And when I say universe, it's not even a universe. This is one of the things that I thought was sort of fun about it was we had decided it was just going to be our solar system. And it was our solar system after the end of what we were calling the golden age where something had entered our solar system the traveler and just made everything great suddenly we we could travel to other planets other planets were being terraformed the moons of saturn and jupiter were terraformed and you know all this wonderful stuff happened but something broke it all down something the darkness came and it all went to hell. <laughs> so that's when our game was supposed to start was in that period after everything was affected and by the darkness. So that's as, about as much as we had. And then we had this really beautiful image. It was a concept art image. And I think there was even a, a small little video of this traveler sphere hovering above the earth. And it was just really, really pretty. And that's about all we had. And what happened was it was sometime after we had shipped Reach, which was, you know, fall of 2010. So in early 2011, like right in January, it was like, okay, time to really get serious about what this Destiny thing was going to be about. And the marketing director at the time, a guy named Pete Parsons, came to me and said, hey, you know, the guys really would like to have a bunch of music. It helps inspire the team. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't have a bunch of music. <laughs> Like I have this one thing uh, and I could, you know, I'm planning on trying to figure out how to, you know, spin that out into some new themes and some new stuff. But I need like trailers or gameplay or story. I need something. And he goes, uh, yeah, we don't have that yet, obviously. So is there some way we could just do like a musical prequel? So or I'm not even sure if he used the word prequel. He said, you know, can we can we just start with music first, music that all by itself and see where that leads. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's a cool idea. Uh, let me think about that. So I went home and I, I, I remember looking at that sphere hovering over earth 
And immediately it clicked that like I was already doing this solar system music of the spheres thing conceptually, but I hadn't sort of formalized it. And I thought, you know, that that would be a great way to inspire me to write themes that could hopefully be strong enough and have enough changes of emotional content in, in them so that we could have something that could stand on a stand by itself, be a, a listening experience by itself and then inspire new music uh, down the road for the next decade. So I sort of formalized this idea of music of the spheres. And immediately I was thinking of Gustav Holst. And I thought, okay, well, Holst was post Copernicus. He was, he was doing the right science. He went all the way to Uranus and he, you know, he had things in the right order and, you know, the sun and the moon are not planets. So I thought, okay, that's a hundred years ago. I'm going to take a stab at getting into Holst territory, hopefully <laughs> not embarrass myself. Uh, but I'm going to do it with a different spin. I'm going to use the discarded image. I'm going to use this old, old medieval concept of of our worlds and the concept of the planets, which were at that time uh, wandering stars. So the Earth is the center. The Earth is not a planet. So you have seven planets, the seven wandering stars that humans can see with the naked eye. And what's beautiful about that concept is that it's something that unified just about everybody's mythology for thousands and thousands of years. So there's poetry and music and, and literature and song that's all based on this is what we see, so this must be what it is. So the moon, the sun, Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. These were planets you could see. And there's an order that they're in. The moon is first, the Mercury is second, Venus is third. I don't know why that's the order exactly. I, I didn't study it enough. But what I loved is I could, okay, I could do a suite of seven pieces, which represents the seven ancient planets, ancient concept of planets. And I knew we were going to be visiting moons or I knew that in the game we would probably be visiting these things. And the other thing I thought of, which is kind of esoteric and weird, but I was thinking the Traveler was this ancient, mysterious orb from deep within our galaxy. That So for me, I was thinking, what if the Traveler had been sending signals to our solar system for millennia and slowly waking up and trying to communicate with our solar system and our planets. And by the time it got here and it terraformed Mars and it did all these beautiful, wonderful things, we as humans were like completely clueless what was going on. But what if for millennia, our brains had picked up on these ancient signals coming in and we misinterpreted them as music. And that's where the concept of music of the spheres came from. So this was a, just a total like, it was just all inside my own head that just got the creative juices flowing and it was exciting to me. And believe it or not, it it came very, very quickly. I had the structure, I had the mode, I had all the key centers for each one of the seven pieces and the, the eighth piece would represent the traveler and the earth and it would come back to basically tonic again. So, you know, as you know, eight notes complete a scale. So... If you look at the pieces, they just go in order. The key centers are, you know, C, D, E, F sharp, G, A, B flat, and then back to C. 
and that's the eight that's the tonal center of the eight pieces i mean all that structure and even the titles of the pieces came like in one evening and i presented the structure to the, the guys at bungie the next day and they were like wow that we don't get it but that sounds great do that so <laughs> I, I just went off and immediately started working on it so that's where all that came from yeah it was just it was a internal construct that helped me get the juices flowing. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about the keys because we've talked about this before, about how each mm -hmm. key has a personality that's really distinct and it's, you know, it's different for, for different composers. But because you had chosen the keys for, oh, let's say the union, which I think is uh, representing Mercury, mm -hmm. um, what what was it about D that seemed really like that should be Mercury. Yeah, I basically I composed myself structurally into a corner. So <laughs> I knew I was going to start it with C and I knew the second piece had to be D. And the second piece also had to represent Mercury. So it wasn't anything more esoteric than that. It was just, that's what the union is going to be. The other thing that's fun for me is like I could look at all the classical because of this concept of the discarded image, which is, you know, for millennia, man looked up at this, humans looked into the sky and they saw the planets. And for some reason, Mercury was, you know, also represents the winged god and speed. And, you know, there's all this other mythical attachments to the planets you know, the sun is the king and, you know, the golden chariot. There's so many things that are just there, ready for the, right for the taking. So I knew that if I started with the moon and the moon is C, only because that was my plan. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing deeper than that. Uh, but the moon could be sort of ethereal and maybe even have a slight feminine nature to it and just just have its own feel and not be fast. And then, of course, Mercury, okay, good, great. I got a fast piece. This needs to be fast. So I was able to go through, like, you know, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, and think about changes of tempo and emotional content and all that stuff. So I knew that I would be, it's, at the end of the, the entire project, I would have just about every emotion represented musically and thematically someplace. So I knew I could, we could, you know, pick from that after it was all over. So it was good because that order of planets gives you a really nice medium tempo, fast tempo, ethereal, majestic, 
warlike. You have all of those things. And, you know, of course, and the, Saturn being the seventh piece and Saturn is, is old age and decrepit and, and evil. And it's also the prison. Um, that's a great penultimate thing to have before you come back to the earth and the traveler and the hope. It just it, it just so fell quickly into this. If you listen to all eight pieces in the order they were intended to be listened to, I wanted people to be able to have an emotional story journey that would somehow reflect, hopefully, whatever was going to end up happening in Destiny down the road. It's really fascinating. And what's also so interesting is you sent me a breakdown of which themes were used for which cues in the game. But I think what's actually even more interesting, at least to me, is the in-between parts, the transitions for how you got from one theme that was used to another. And I, I is that different from writing cues for a regular game? Because you don't normally have to write transitions like that, right? You just write a cue and then bam, <laughs> you're on to the next one. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it, what was different about this was, you know, I, I remember telling the guys, it's like, look, I'm going to start doing this, but it's, if there's a reason why we're going to have, we're going to start with music, then music will not have an attachment to gameplay or a video. It will have to stand on its own, which means the music has to 
be able to stand, you know, have an A theme and a B theme and a, and a development section. And music has to stand as a separate listening experience. And we haven't really done that before. We've, you know, written music for specific encounters and videos. And then later on, like, hey, how can we take all this music and make a soundtrack out of it? And at that point, the people who are listening to the soundtrack goes, you know, they, they can go, oh, I remember hearing this music when I played this particular section of the game or when I watched Cortana crumple, you know, in sadness or whatever it is. But with this, I, it was like, look, if, if we're going to start with music, this, ha this has to be strong enough that it, it stands on its own. It's a listening experience. And that was exciting to me, of course, because it's, wow, I get to write an orchestral suite and get the budget to do it and a super exciting project for me. But like how exactly it was going to fit into the game itself, I had absolutely no clue because at this point, the game was so far from being up on its feet. I mean, it was just really, really far away from being playable or even we didn't even know what the story was going to be yet. So I don't know that answered your question, but like, I, I just put my head down and said, okay, I'm going to go back to my roots and write music that I think is worth listening to for its own, for its own sake, if that's possible. The ecstasy in particular, the piece for Jupiter is mm -hmm. just incredible. It's got that really heroic, just, wow, square fanfare. That's like really amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then those two themes and the thing about it, that I really love is in the soundtrack, I've always wanted more of those themes. <laughs> and uh -huh. in, in the ecstasy, there they are. You extend them with a chorus and then mm -hmm. distill them down to the solo piano. And it's just really magical to hear that whole arc of, of that piece. It's just really great. Well, thanks. I mean, and this is one of my, you know, dreams, of course, was I was so excited about this concept that we were going to at the time, Bungie was in its own darkness. We even called it the darkness. We were dark to the press. After Reach shipped, we didn't talk to the fans. We didn't talk to the press. People just did not know what we were working on. And this was on purpose. We we needed things to sort of settle out. We needed to really know what we were going to do. And we knew it was going to be a while. And we didn't want to start raising expectations too too early. But the concept from the marketing guy was the first thing that will come out of the darkness with is music. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> that's great. I love this idea. So I just put my head down, like I said, and just like, okay, well, I'm going to make the best music I possibly can uh, so that when it comes out, people will be really excited about everything that's going to be coming. So, yeah, uh, that was, you know, that was the original intent. That was the original plan. And it was an amazing opportunity. And as you know, we got, you know, all sorts of things to happen. But, you know, for example, on the ecstasy, I... It was it was like okay this is this this is Jupiter which everybody knows is not everybody knows but <laughs> sort of from from the mythology of the of the early you know medieval concept of the planets Jupiter is the king of the planets it's the biggest one and it's somehow thought of as a king but there's also the red spot so there's a sort of tragic it's been used to symbolize all sorts of things um, Jupiter also is joy. And I think, you know, the the hymn, and I couldn't, of course, Jupiter is such a strong, it was probably one of my favorite pieces from Holst. And it had that choral part that 
Oh, yeah. I've... That the amazing theme, you know, and I thought, well, I, I, I want to sort of do homage to the Holst version of Jupiter without, you know, actually stealing anything, obviously. But I also wanted to re- remind people of Jupiter being this, the king of planets. But I thought, well, this is going to be more like, because the darkness has fallen, it's sort of like this majestic king that has fallen. It's sort of like the fallen king. So I wanted it to be fanfare, triumphant, uh, regal, but still have this sort of element of tragedy, sort of like like the funeral march for the for the fallen king, at some point. So these were all these fun concepts that were circling in my head uh, as the theme started coming out. So that's how that's how that happened.
could you see in like the concept art or early builds of the game how the the development team was using your music for inspiration? Well, that didn't happen until much later. The first thing that happened, oh man, it must have been, well, like I said, it was early 2011. As soon as I came up with the, the arc of this whole thing, I just sat down right from the beginning and started writing the themes for each one of the pieces, the tempo, the, you know, almost all of the path came out pretty fully as a, a piano piece. And then the the feel and the main themes for Mercury came out. And then I went to the third one, which I, the third one was actually interesting. Venus, since I'd already done sort of a slightly, I don't want to sound sexist here, but I mean, it, the, the moon, is Luna, you know, the moon has already got sort of this ethereal, almost feminine feel to it. And I didn't want to just do some romantic, schlocky thing for Venus. So I thought, well, Venus, I'll, I'll turn into more of like, like a process piece, a piece that maybe this is what the kind of musical symbols that woke up our solar system. This is what the traveler was sending. This is like a musical translation of what the traveler was sending. So that's why that has that sort of clock feel to it and, and almost like musical code in the Venus piece. Yeah, and it's got that kind of minimalist feel to it, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it just sort of grows into this really amazing passage with brass, which is... Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you're listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's you know it, to me it was always meant to be heard in that context to hear all eight pieces in a row because there's a story that's told there somehow if you listen to it so that's well let's not get into that but I mean that that's why I did it and then after Venus you have the Sun which is the tribulation and that is that that idea came from the the idea that you know the the Sun was in some way at some point during this whole thing the Sun went dark. And that's why 
our our galaxy went into uh, decline when the darkness came. So it was this tribulation idea, and and I wanted it to have this really the probably the saddest feeling of all the pieces. Uh, and then Mars, of course, being very warlike, and uh, Jupiter being what I said before about the fallen king, and then Saturn being mysterious and evil and the prison. So it was just, I just, you know, I wrote all these themes, probably had a minute, minute and a half at least for each piece. And then it was like, okay, now, now what do I do? Now we really got to start producing this thing. And, and I got to start... Sp- making this whole thing into a real, real piece. 
So all that stuff came first. And I, I remember presenting it to a couple of the guys at Bungie, and they were very excited about it. And they were like, okay, you know, go forth and conquer, do it. So that's that's how that happened. And But simultaneously, now we'll probably talk about this too. You probably weren't ready to ask me about this, but almost simultaneously while I was writing this, this Paul McCartney concept was happening in the background. So I think that's just incredible. I mean, first of all, I have to say you're the only person I know who has a voicemail from Paul McCartney. <laughs> and that's my only vo- voicemail from him because from that point forward, I, I believe it or not, I got out of the shower, I saw my phone had a voicemail on it and I listened to it and I'm like, oh my gosh, it was Paul. Like, So from then on, I you know, had my ringer on all the time. I never wanted him to like get my voicemail. But then I realized later on, it's like, oh, that was, that's such an honor to have a, an actual recording of Paul talking, you know, trying to get a hold of me. <laughs> so I'm glad I have that one. Well, the uh, fact that he was, you know, involved and that he said yes. Uh, and I remember seeing him yeah. on The Daily Show and he was just so thrilled to be able to do something like this. And he was talking about how impressed his, his kids and his grandkids were. And so yeah. it just seemed like that's a real amazing. serendipitous you know, kind of blending of, of the two, you know, two kinds of music. And especially for you, it must have just been such a thrill to work with him. Well, it, it it's completely was. But what was funny is that I had this music of the spheres concept sort of totally nailed. And I was already working on it before Paul ever came into the picture. Although we knew that Paul and people were contacting him and it was sort of there was there might be this interest in working on a game and maybe working with me uh and and Bungie so i think it was oh, i know it was 2011 yeah it was um at gdc believe it or not at 2011 i was a, a keynote speaker for you know the music thing and i found out right before i started my talk that Paul was wanted a meeting with me in L.A. like two weeks later. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I was just like, I, my brain was just bouncing around. I could barely, you know, stay focused on what I had to talk about. But sure enough, April of 2011, I met with Paul in L.A. And it was just really sort of like he had 20 minutes is what I was told. He'd have 20 minutes to sort of hear my pitch and that would be it. And I thought, well, what a you know it's this is the culmination of my life's work i get to actually go to la and meet with paul mccartney and if nothing comes of it it doesn't matter because i'm meeting with paul mccartney so i i just remember i would just be i just was myself i just we just talked about music we talked about kids and grandkids and and the conversation kept going and going and i showed him a bunch of stuff i showed him stuff from halo i showed him stuff from you know what we were working on in destiny i showed him what i was thinking about with music of the spheres finally and he said he goes, oh, I really like that. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, okay. And he said, he goes, yeah, you know, in my, my neighborhood in Liverpool, there's the, the red rose and the white rose, depending on which neighborhood you live in. <laughs> and that's the War of the Roses. So when I showed him, here's this piece called The Rose, and it's going to go like this. Like, he was like, oh, I love that because he says, this reminds me, believe it or not, this is, this sounds like I'm making this up, but I'm not. He's, he's told me about how he showed you know, this bizarre concept to his his buddies <laughs> called Sergeant Pepper, a Lonely Hearts Club band, and he'd written it on a napkin and, you know, he showed it to them. And he, he remembers thinking that it was kind of a wacky idea because I was sort of saying, yeah, I'm working on this Music of the Spheres thing. I don't know if it's, it seems cool to me, but who knows? And he was like, oh, no, no, you should 
do that. Definitely do that. That's really cool. So, and I also, we, we also talked about what's unique about a lot of game music is that you use loops. Um, you, you do stuff and then you implement it by having things that loop and overlap. And so you can extend the time of how long something plays. And he started telling me about his, he goes, oh yeah, you know, on Revolver. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I use this Brunel tape machine to do loops. And, you know, I think I still have that in my attic. So sure enough, he started using that. And, and those loops are in the prison. There are some of his loops are in the path. He looped his voice. The, the His voice loops are in the prison and the path. So and what sort of feels sad to me is that I wish I could have talked about this under the original plan, which would have been, you know, in January of 2013, we would have released Music of the Spheres to the World and had all the hoopla involved with that and, you know, Paul McCartney and I could tell people what we did and what's going on and, and all of that just went away. So it's great that I can at least share this now because it's been sort of pent up for a number of years. Well, yeah. And everybody's been kind of wondering, when are we going to get to hear it? I remember when we talked, well, over a year ago, almost almost two mm -hmm. years ago about it. And even then we were saying, well, gee, <laughs> hope we'll get Eventually. Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I love about uh, the track, The Hope, that is on the music of the spheres now is the way his song just grows organically out of the music rather than being just kind of a standalone thing, you know, which it can do, but it's so much more interesting to hear how it just evolves. It's like this natural progression. So it's really neat to hear it in its, in its uh, natural habitat, I guess. <laughs> well, the interesting, I'm going to give you a little, like we never knew whether Paul would be interested in writing uh, a song, oh, you know, and, and going back, of course, I don't want to leave Mike Salvatore out of this, but he, you know, Mike was in Chicago this whole time. So uh, the way I always worked with Mike was I would get the gig, I would have musical ideas, I would send him stuff, he would send me stuff, we'd work together that way. Uh, once we, you know, were no longer physically in the same city. But after I talked to Paul in April of 2011, you know, I called Mike and told him, oh, my gosh, I think I think Paul McCartney might want to work with us. <laughs> and Mike was like through the moon. And sometime in the summer, I think after that. Well, actually, I went to Chicago in in the July of 2011 to see Paul play at Wrigley Field. And then I showed Paul like the progress we were making on the game. And it was sometime during that time after that that Mike came up with the idea of moving to Seattle so he could be right there and we could start working full time together on on the the project. So Mike didn't Mike didn't show up until fall of 2011 and it was one of those things it's like oh my gosh I can't believe Mike Salvatore is physically on site and actually here. So from from that point forward it was us working together with Paul and uh working working on all these ideas and spinning them out. So that was really cool. Yeah, I forget what I was. Was that the? Was that your question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I just went off on a tangent. Oh, it was just how how great it was to hear the song, the oh. Hope for the Future song, in in that track, kind of as it grows out of because you you sort of hint at it with, oh, yeah. with the theme right in the beginning, and then all of a sudden there there it is. It just yeah. as, as a song. So I think that's that's really neat too. The concept with Paul was like. 
you know, he just really wanted to work on music for the game. And then I met with him early in 2012. It was like uh, February of 2012. He was he was there to do the Grammys and he invited me to come to his rehearsal studio. And I played him a bunch of stuff we were working on because, oh, even before that, I think in November of 2011, I met him at Capitol Records, which was amazing. That's Studio A, Capitol Records, you know, where Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra and all that stuff. So it's just me and Paul in, in that studio, and I'm playing him stuff on the piano. And at that point, I, I was playing him stuff that he had sent me and showing him how we might make it into game music and how we would work with it. And then he was like, well, what happened to that Music of the Spheres thing? Like, let's let's talk about working on that, too. And that's when I was like, oh, uh, well, I've, you know, I've really gone a long way with it. How, how do you want to – do you actually want to collaborate with me? Because I was thinking – Paul would send me something and we'd, we would do Paul's piece. Right. That's what I was thinking. And then, you know, Music of the Spheres was my piece. So let's, I don't know if Paul wants to do it. He goes, oh, no, no, I want to, I want to collaborate. Let's uh, take some of my music and your music and it becomes our music. And so I was just thrilled with that. So I'm like, okay, from that, so that point on, it was like, okay, how could we incorporate Paul into the music we were working on? And so I just said to him, I said, plus, you know, it'd be kind of cool if, you know, there was a song, <laughs> hint, hint. And he goes, yeah, you know, I'll think about it. And so when I saw him in April of 2012 in Burbank, uh, which was, by the way, just amazing. I got to sit there and watch, you know, him and his band in a little rehearsal studio, uh, just jam and play and rehearse their stuff because they were, he was headlining the Grammys. So it it was such a thrill for me to do that. I, I it was just amazing. But I, I was able to play him a mock-up of the prison, which had a bunch of his stuff in it. And he was like super excited about it. And he goes, yeah, I really like that. And then he said, uh, I just want you to know, I think I might have a song for you. <laughs> <laughs> so then in May, he was ready for me to come work with him. And I flew to London and we of 2012 when uh, I was at the penthouse studio there's a couple pictures out there on the internet of me, him with his hands up and me doing something. Yeah, and, yeah, I've seen those. You know, you know, that's that's from that session. That was a we that there was a videographer there that day. So there's a whole bunch of video from that session, believe it or not. So he played me the song that day, which by, by the way is on video, and you know, I was like, "Wow, this is really cool." It was just a early demo of the song. So we spent the day, geez, you know, I have to tell somebody this. <laughs> I'm with Paul at Abbey Road. He, you know, he walked in the back door because he just lives down the street. And, uh, you know, people are always waiting for a Paul McCartney to walk in through the front of Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, but we're we're up there. It was just the two of us uh, after the videographer guy was gone. And, and I'm showing him stuff. He's He's playing stuff for me. I'm playing stuff for him. We're talking about how to do things. And then he's like, hey, have you had a tour of Abbey Road yet? I'm like, no. And he, so he goes, well, I'll give you a tour. Like, So I got a tour of Abbey Road from Paul McCartney. Wow. Uh, and then we had lunch, and we're sitting having lunch down in the Abbey Road commissary. And Giles Martin is there, and he, he has lunch with us. So that's when I met Giles. 
And Nick Mason walks in, and so he sits down to talk with us. He's the Pink Floyd drummer. And I was just totally, I mean, I was so geeking out. I just, it was, just didn't seem like this was possible. But then they started talking about, oh, yeah, so what are we going to do for the, you know, the Queen's show at uh, the Olympics? Because that was the year the Olympics were in London, and and the Queen did this whole opening thing. And Paul was, Paul and Giles had to put something together for that. So I just sat there listening to all that. Wow. that. So. That's incredible. I mean, just (laughs) what an amazing experience. And it sounds like he was just so down to earth, not, you know, being Paul, Paul McCartney, you know, (laughs) former Beatle throwing, throwing his, you know, kind of reputation, like coasting on his reputation, I guess. Exactly. Uh, Just being totally genuine. That, that is just so cool. Yeah. And what was fun is that when I went back to the studio and I, I played the the demo for for Mike and, and Mike and I were listening to Paul's demo and I I thought you know I was like there was something about it that I I thought you know maybe is there some way to help fix it a little bit and Mike and I had an idea and we started working on some stuff so we actually inserted ourselves into Paul's demo <laughs> and sent it back to him very tentatively like hey you know this is just a thought you don't have to do this obviously and then we didn't hear from him for weeks. And I thought, okay, that's it. We just insulted him, and that's the end of that. And sure enough, though, he uh, like then we got a I got a thing back from Paul saying, hey, yeah, I like the ideas you guys had. I, I changed some of the stuff around, and here's a new demo. And sure enough, he incorporated our stuff, and it's in the final song. And uh, you know, we were just so relieved that we hadn't insulted him, and he was really easy to work with, and and he took some of our suggestions and and came up with the thing. So then in. Uh, September of that year, we went to New York's Avatar Studios and Paul and his band came and we recorded the entire Hope for the Future song, just the band part of it, and Paul singing. And Giles Martin engineered that. So we were there in New York watching that session. And that was also filmed. That was videoed by two different videographers. So that footage is out there someplace. Wow. And then in November of that year, we recorded for four days at Abbey Road with the orchestra and the choir. Paul came to that session, when, especially when his piece was getting the orchestra overdubs. And then December of that year, so just like a month later, less than a month later, we went to Bar- Santa Barbara, Dennis Sands has a studio there, and Dennis mixed everything for us. So by... I hit my deadline, January 1st, 2013. I was ready to release Music of the Spheres to the entire world. And I was like, here it is. I'm finished. Wow. Well, we did get to hear a little bit of it because one of the the tracks, The Union, was played at a Video Games Live show, which Mm -hmm. was very cool. Yeah. So, well, let's talk a little bit about how Music of the Spheres came to be released because it's such an interesting story. And I'm just... Curious, right off the bat, why did this finally seem like the right time to make this effort to get it out? Once again, it's serendipitous. I I had nothing to do with it other than this this uh, fan named Owen Spence, and uh, there's an another guy. I think he's from Mexico's. I don't know what his actual name is. This goes by Tolson, or I don't know how to pronounce his name. Anyway, Owen Spence had contacted me. Well, pretty soon after I was let go from Bungie and said he was a big fan. And I think I did a thing for uh, the Video Games Awards, which was a big fanfare piece, fanfare for video games. And Owen contacted me saying how much he liked it. And 
I think I eventually sent him a score or something. Anyway, he, I started seeing that these two guys got together and they started piecing together what they thought Music of the Spheres was because they, they read the transcript of the arbitration, which said that 40 of the 48 minutes of the music was out in the wild and in the game and in the soundtrack. And uh, they were wondering, well, what are what were those pieces? Because it wasn't complete anyplace. So they spent some time piecing this together over the years. And I, you know, I was interested to see how they guessed at it. And I think at some point I I said, hey, nice job. You guys are close or something like that <laughs> on YouTube's on their site or whatever. I just said, hey, you know, that's that's fun to listen to. Nice job. You guys are close. Someday you'll know how close you are. So they did even more work this fall and put up another version of it. And I think I just tweeted something like after I listened to it, I was just like, oh, for you know, for goodness sakes, it's been five years. This is pretty close why hey Bungie why not just release it I mean just release it now it's it's close enough who cares right and then I was just thinking about it and I thought well you know starting in January of 2013 I ended up making a bunch of copies of the score because it was supposed to be released for marketing purposes and promotional reasons and I would I'd sent stuff to people in the industry at Microsoft, at Sony, Activision, people within Bungie. We had it up on a server at Bungie so people could listen to it. All 600 people working at Bungie had access to it constantly. It was being heard, and and then it started being kind of used in things. And I'm like, wait, it's not supposed to be used and chopped up until later. <laughs> like, I, I – it's like the whole point was let's have people listen to it the way it's intended and then we can get away with rearranging, chopping, editing, repurposing. We can do everything we anything we want to to it, but I didn't want it to start out that way because that wasn't the deal. So and as you know, this was one of the points of contention between me and the powers that be. I just didn't like the way things were going and it wasn't part of the plan. And I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with the plan. That was one of many things I didn't agree with. So <laughs> that was the end of that. So uh, anyway, fast forward now, just this fall, uh, after five years of it being suppressed, uh, I knew there was at least 100 CDs out there someplace that I had given away. So I, I realized that I couldn't release it, and I had no ability to give people permission to release it. But I could give them my blessing <laughs> so that's what I tweeted. I said, I can't give you permission to re to share this, but you, no one can tell me that I can't give you my blessing. So I tweeted that, and apparently that triggered somebody, and I still don't know who it is, but somebody who had it apparently made some sort of rip of it and sent that to uh, Owen Spence. And Owen being, you know, a 16, 17 year old kid. I don't know. He's, he's still pretty young uh, and he's fearless. <laughs> he just put it all out there on Christmas day, him and, and Tolson put it all out on Christmas day. And I thought, well, okay, that's great. At least people get to hear it for a few hours before it gets taken down and it still hasn't been taken down. So I don't know. It's possible somebody maybe from Bungie did it. Maybe Bungie did it behind the scenes and, they just didn't know how to do it without 
I don't know. I honestly don't know who did it, and I don't know why Bungie hasn't taken it down. So I'm happy about both those things. Well, what are you hoping, or what do you think might happen next, or what are you hoping will happen next with it? That is a good question. I mean, I always had visions of, you know, like I conducted, I've conducted it now a few times for Video Games Live. I conducted the union in Brazil. I conducted it in New Jersey. And I conducted originally in the summer of 2013 at Comic-Con. But I would love to see Music of the Spheres be released the way it's supposed to be, including the double set of poems written by my friend Malcolm Geit, who's this just wonderful poet from Cambridge who wrote poems inspired by listening to Music of the Spheres and understanding the He's a C.S. Lewis scholar, so he decided he would write poetry that goes along with it, goes along with each of the planets. So I would love to see all of that released. I'd love to see all the video that's been shot be available for people to see. And then as the future goes, I, I would like to be able to do some concerts. You know, I, I, I think this would be, you know, I'm biased, of course, but I, I was had many inquiries about Music of the Spheres for live orchestral concerts. Uh, I have a guy who's the South Dakota Symphony conductor wanted to do it live there, and I would love to see it performed live. That's what I'd like to see. That would be fantastic. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that would be just amazing. So hopefully, you know, that'll happen at some point because we went waiting and waiting and weren't ever sure if it would make it out into the world in yeah. its original form, and it's done that, so who knows? Oh, one, you know, there's one other little tidbit, which is interesting. Now, there are two versions of Hope for the Future, well, at least two. Paul, I think, released a bunch of different remixes of Hope for the Future, but the one that was on this original album that just got released, that got leaked, is different. It's a different mix than the final mix that Paul did, because it was it was done in December, and then Paul did it, he he remixed it again the next spring or something. But the version that, that you're hearing there, and you'd have to compare them side by side, has boys choir in it all the way through. And Paul didn't use that in the version that he mixed. So there's it's one of those interesting things. It's sort of like, you know, there, here's another Beatles sort of uh, secret thing where, well, which version of, you know, Let It Be is this? Is this the live version? Is this the, you know... So the version that's out there that we that you know we had had boys choir that that we had intended to be on there and now it's out there so people can hear that. And like you said I I think the intention always was for Paul's song to finish up the suite and grow out of number 8 the eighth movement. And of course I knew what Paul's song was going to be so I could hint at his melodies uh in the oboe and the flute and so those melodies are in there, and then they go into the a melody that I had written, like almost on day one. Da 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 da. -da. And so what's nice about that is he's outlining with his melody the right kind of scale, it just fits right into that perfectly. And then the other melody, da 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 da. That's a melody I'd written way earlier. So all that stuff starts really melding together in really, really, at least for me, really nice ways. So I'm so happy people can hear it the way it was intended and not as some weird sort of joke song at the credits or I don't know. I, I don't mean to say it was a joke, but I, I just, 
I wasn't able to sort of, I, I feel like I got to the two, two yard line and I wasn't able to carry it over the, the goal line. There, that's the end of that metaphor. Okay. <laughs> but wow, it has been just absolutely fascinating talking with you about this. And again, I'm just, I feel so lucky to be able to talk to you. I mean, just, you know, go to the source. <laughs> yeah, good. So Marty, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Kate. I appreciate it.
hope for the future Some wait for the call To say that the days ahead Will be the best of all We will build bridges Up to the sky Lighting up.